Well, hello everyone and welcome once again to the 360 Experience. I'm your host, Tim Brahim, and today's episode is one that I really want to strongly encourage you to invest the full two hours into. Um, this is going to be a, a fascinating conversation that I, I guarantee you is going to teach you an awful lot about the topic of money. Robert Breedlove is someone who I've known for about three years now. He's become a friend of mine. He is a former CPA and hedge fund manager that has catapulted to superstardom and notoriety within the cryptocurrency space. He is a gifted orator. He does a phenomenal job of breaking down complex subject matters into a very digestible and understandable format. And beyond that, he is an astute historian on the subject matter of the history of money, the subject matter of inflation, uh, the impacts that money has had sociologically, politically, and psychologically on us as human beings. Um, be ready to learn a lot, as I said, about the topic of money and how it impacts your life and how it has impacted all of history. But beyond that, Robert Breedlove is also a Bitcoin maximalist, someone who believes very strongly in the freedom and sovereignty of human beings, uh, which I believe is a noble cause. And in this conversation, we are going to go into the depths of understanding of the history of money and the future of money and why Robert believes that the most perfect money that's ever been created is Bitcoin. Expect to learn a lot about the topic of Bitcoin and expect to leave with a lot more questions because it is a deep, deep rabbit hole that we are going to go down together. The good news is that Robert has his own podcast show, which I want to highly recommend that you subscribe to. I think you'll really love listening to some of the amazing guests that he has on his show. But before you do, let's take a couple hours, get a good workout in, go for a walk, listen to this in a couple of segments, and be prepared to have your mind blown because you're going to walk away, as I said, a lot more knowledgeable than you were before you began. Before I introduce you to Robert Breedlove, I just want to remind you, please, that if you are not a subscriber to the 360 Experience, please take the time to subscribe. If you are viewing this on YouTube, please make sure that you forward it to somebody who you think would find benefit from it and give us a like, if you will. Same with Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, we thrive off of subscriptions and, of course, likes and forwards because uh, that allows me to get someone as prominent as Robert Breedlove to be on this show because uh, we're growing our subscriber base. And without further ado, my conversation with no one other than Robert Breedlove. What's up, Robert? It's good to see you, man. It's been a long time. Uh, how's it going? Hey, Tim. Good to be back. Uh, things are good, man. Like I was telling you, I just wrapped up a trip um, through Europe, had some work and some vacation. Now I'm back in Nashville, back on the grind, and um, got a lot more travel coming up this year, but but things are really good. You were doing uh, some some conferences that you were speaking at in, in Europe? Is that what was happening? Yeah, so I've been both speaking, doing keynote uh, keynotes at conferences, doing panels at conferences, both moderating and participating. And then we also take the show on the road when we go 
like the, the two conferences I went to were Bitcoin Prague and the Oslo Freedom Forum. So there's a lot of uh, select people in one place at one time. So we just take our whole mobile studio there and interview a lot of people back to back. So uh, I used to go to these events and enjoy them and participate and, you know, occasionally speak. So it's become much more of a workload because you're interviewing, you know, two or three people a day, you're preparing for a keynote, you're on a panel. But um, that's kind of the nature of the, the business, I guess, getting into the media game. You've just got to uh, get as much juice for the squeeze as you can. So these events have gone from being kind of like uh, an enjoyable vacation type of thing, like a networking event where you go and see a lot of people and have fun to something that's a lot more work heavy. But, you know, I love my work, so it's not that bad. Yeah, yeah. so let's dive into your work. Um, I have I, I have two questions and I'm going to let you take them in whichever order you want. You'll probably laugh at both questions because they're massive rabbit holes, but I, I really feel like we could probably spend most of the conversation on these two questions. The first question is, what is Bitcoin? Mm. Okay, because I, I think that there's, at least from my personal experience, when I first heard about Bitcoin, I, I didn't really understand what it was. And then there became a point where I thought that I knew what it was. And then there became a point where I realized it's so much more than I thought that it was. And I think it's so much more than the general public perceives it to be. And I think that that's a part of the process is people getting educated on what Bitcoin is. So I, I, I want to ask you that. And then I want to ask you, what is money? <laughs> because I don't know that you can answer the conversation or the question of what is Bitcoin without answering what is money. But I'm going to leave it up to you to take them in the order that you think uh, they should be delivered in. Man, those are, well, you literally just asked. The two questions that my entire show, really, what is money, right? You start with what is money, and the and answer to that is Bitcoin is money. And so my entire show, the What Is Money show, that we're now 350 episodes into, probably it's got to be over 500 hours of content by now, has been centered, wrapped around the axis of trying to answer those two questions. And I'll tell you what, um, one of the things before I get to answering these questions, and I think you'll see this as we go through the conversation, one of the points asking the question, what is money in particular has drawn me to is that language is simply insufficient to describe this infinitely complex, dynamic, fluid reality that we inhabit. Now it's it's insufficient but it's also indispensable. Like we can't, like the, what separates man from animal is that we have language and rationality. Um, there's a great quote that I can't recall who said it, but he said, you know, the purpose of free speech is so that our ideas can go to battle and die so that our bodies don't have to. So it's, we're like the animal that figured out how to resolve disputes among ourselves using rationality rather than pure violence. And that's literally what makes us man. That's what makes us human. And that's what allows us to build civilization. But the it's kind of like, I consider language to be a mapping tool. Like we're constantly trying to map reality. And there's, a, there's another saying here that the map is not the territory, right? The, the, the map will always exclude certain features or details or nuance about the territory. Because if the map was the territory, then there would be no, it would be the territory, right? There'd be no use to have the map. So 
and you see language change over time as our technological realities change. Uh, for instance, today you might hear people say things like, oh, that's a feature, not a bug. You know, they could say that about anything. Maybe on the, something on their car, something about their personality, so, you know, a commentary on um, anything really. But the point is, if you said that 25 years ago, no one would know what the hell you were talking about. That's a feature, not a bug. People are like, what? I have no idea what that means. So we we change our, our phrases, we change our words. Um, you know, even like the word meme, right? Uh, now, memetics have been talked about for a long time, but meme really became uh, part of mainstream vernacular post-internet culture, right? As we started sharing these little cultural data packets where you combine like popular scenes of movies with certain little quotes, and they might be funny, or they might be informative. And memes have, you know, they've become kind of like a mainstream currency for the internet. So anyways, I say all that to frame the answer to these questions that what I'm going to try to say to you is never going to be fully descriptive of the reality of what is. And I've actually found that that, that question, I feel very fortunate to have stumbled upon the question, what is money? Because initially it was just me learning about Bitcoin. I found that the first thing you needed to understand was the nature of money. Otherwise you're never going to understand Bitcoin. When these, uh, when people with a technical focus would try to answer the question, they hit you with something like, Bitcoin is a distributed peer-to-peer -peer software network that you can that solve the Byzantine generals problem that allows us to move money without intermediaries. You know, and people like, you know, their eye, you know, 99% of humans, their eyes just gloss over. Like, what the hell does that mean? You've I, I've asked you a complicated question and you've given me more questions. So me being like a non-technical specialist, I know enough about like the computer science of Bitcoin and um let's say network effects to understand how it works, but I'm not a coder, I'm not a, a software developer. So when I was trying to understand Bitcoin, I approached it more from an economics standpoint. And when you start going into the economics rabbit hole, you actually find that the question, what is money has been long debated and it's still debated among economists. They still don't have like a clear answer. So I'll actually, I'm gonna invert them and I'll start with, the nature of money first, and then I'll try and describe Bitcoin. And I'm going to do this again. We've spent hundreds of hours on the shows doing this. I'm not going to be able to compress all of that into a few minutes here, but I will try to give you the the crystallized nugget, if you will, <laughs> that I've pulled out of my experience. So one of the most apt answers to the question, what is money? And this comes from the Austrian School of Economics is that money is a universal medium of exchange. So it is something, it is a good or a technology that we use to facilitate transactions, right? So when you try, um, we've all heard of barter, right? You know, swapping things instead of uh, transacting through money. Money's like this. Money's a mode of indirect exchange versus direct exchange. Barter would be direct. I swap you chickens for hats. Problem is, of course, do you want chickens? Do I have enough chickens? Can I divide the chickens in the right way to get the hats that I want? It creates a lot of problems, it creates what the economists call the, I think it's called the non-coincidence of wants problem. So that your wants and my wants don't necessarily coincide 
every time and in every place. And in fact, they almost never do. So instead, um, humans, as a consequence of just trading with one another across time, and I'm going to draw on lessons here from Carl Minger's work titled On the Origins of Money. It's a very short read written in somewhat esoteric English, but it, I think it best describes how money emerges. People are trading with one another. When they encounter this coincidence of wants problem, right? you have hats, I have chickens, but you don't want chickens and I want hats. But I know that you want something that's more common, maybe water, right? So if I can go and trade my chickens for water, I know that you'll accept water for your chickens. So I'm, I've basically obtained the water not to consume it myself. I've obtained it such that I can trade with you. So when a, when a large group of people are doing this, something that's more generally desirable, like water, will become, no pun intended, a more liquid asset than something like chickens or hats, right? There's less people that want chickens or hats in general than want water, for instance. So water will be more widely accepted in trade. So it becomes a commodity in that regard, right? That's right. Yeah, you can say a commodity, very, very much so. It's another way to put it. It's actually another answer for the question, what is money? As described by the Austrians, they say it's the most marketable good or commodity. So the Got most it. widely accepted good or commodity. Now, as this process unfolds with a large group of people, as you could imagine, you could intuit this, something necessarily, some good or some commodity is necessarily the most widely accepted good, right? It just that's the thing that most people will, are willing to trade their goods and services for. There has to be something, right? If everything, you can imagine at the bottom of the liquidity stack being something very niche. Maybe it's like, I'm just picking something out of the blue here, purple telescopes. Right? <laughs> Maybe there's like 1% of 1% of the people in the world that really are trying to get their hands on a purple telescope. The other 99.99% don't care. Whereas something more like water, it's like, okay, well, that's a necessary um commodity for survival so it's much more widely accepted and this is where just to i'm going to try to from time to time just check in with you make sure also yep. that the listeners are able to really comprehend and digest all of this so a great example of that commodity would be something like oil or petrol yeah. right i mean yes. that that the, the more widely used the more necessary the more right. it starts to take on the form of a currency in the way that it is functioning within societies. Is that accurate? That's right. Okay. Based on our technological paradigm. You know, oil was discovered, I'm actually reading a book on Rockefeller right now. For a long time, we, we knew about oil, but we didn't know what to do with it. We were using it for like medicines and uh, rubs and, you know, these different kind of uh, just human medicinal use. We didn't have an industrial use for oil until we figured out the combustion engine, right? So when we became an industrialized economy and entered the, entered the industrial age, all of a sudden oil becomes one of the most widely demanded commodities in the world because it's the most one of the most efficient ways to combust hydrocarbons into useful energy. And energy is the primary input to basically every industrial process. So it's a good point, but you have to remember Different things are demanded at different times based on the technological realities we inhabit. So, again, back to Carl Minger's book, his argument is essentially that something in every trading society becomes the most tradable 
asset, if you will, or the most marketable good, the most liquid good. They also use the term the most saleable good. So it's the, the good that you can sell onto the market with the least loss in price. Something that has, uh, because again, it has the most, if it's the most widely accepted, then it has the most deep liquidity and it's most widely accepted among trading partners. So you get as little slippage as possible. Like, or do you try to sell something very illiquid? Like if you try and go and sell, a, I don't know, a seed stage investment you made in a startup company today, there's not a public market for that. There's not a secondary market for that. If you were really under duress and you needed to sell it, you'd probably have to go sell it to someone at a pretty steep discount, you know, 30, 40%. That's a term called slippage. It's like where the fair value of this thing is not being reflected by a willing buyer in the marketplace because there's just not enough willing buyers. But when it comes to something widely demanded, there's a lot of willing buyers. So you're going to have as little slippage as possible. And so every society has always, it's, it's almost like it's an emergent, another answer to the question, what is money? It's an emergent property of exchange. Like as we exchange things, we figure out very quickly, there's a coincidence, this non-coincidence of what's problem. We have to resolve it. I know you want water, not chicken. So I'm going to, I will trade for the thing that's most liquid just to be able to trade with you, right? Even if I don't need the water, if I have water is kind of a bad example because we all need water. But the point is, even if I don't need to consume the water, I will have a desire or demand for the water just so I can trade with you because I want what you have to offer. So that thing that emerges through this process of trade among a group of people is money. Like that's what emerges. And it, it's been different things in different places, different times. In ancient Western Africa, you know, they use glass beads for a really long time. On the Yap Islands, they used rye stones. Um, in ancient Rome, salt was used for a long time. Soldiers were paid in salt, where we get the word salary. Um, cattle have been used. That's where we get the word uh, pecuniary, which means like relating to money. Uh, pecun is, I forget, an Italian word, maybe a Spanish word for cow. So there's all these... Um, connections between commodities and money and, and the different things that have served as money over time. Now, as this long, you know, the world initially emerges in kind of small pockets of trade where people are just trading, you know, in a local regional area, information doesn't move that fast because we don't have telecommunications. So what was money in Western Africa was not necessarily what was money in North America is not necessarily what it was, you know, the, the Native Americans were using clams for a while, right? We still say, we still use that term clams. They're using like clam shells. It's not necessarily what was being used as money in China, right? They, they used silver for a long time. And uh, they actually were the first country to have um, fiat currency as well, that they tried, the emperor moved to a pure paper currency. So, but as the world industrialized and then became interconnected by telecommunication networks, and the entire world is trading amongst itself, it starts to zero in on the best money. And this is why I think the, the one of, if not the deepest answer to the, to the question, what is money, is you get to the properties of good money. And so a key point here is we as humans don't actually demand or desire a good, any good for a good's sake. 
What we actually desire are the services it renders to us or the outcomes it can provide us. For instance, uh, you drive a Tesla, I'm pretty sure. Yep. You don't actually want a Tesla. Like you might think, oh, I want a Tesla. But what you actually want is reliable, fast transportation from point A to point B, right? The freedom to go wherever you want to go. You might also want a Tesla because it reflects your stance towards the environment or the ecology, right? I think an electric car is better for the world than a combustion car. Uh, it might be a status symbol, right? I want to drive a premium vehicle so that I can represent my economic status to the world to some extent. These are outcomes that you're actually de desiring that you sort of abstract into, I want a Tesla. And I love that I haven't been to a gas station in six years. There you go. Just right? a time management tool for me. Exactly. <laughs> outcome yeah. that you actually demand. So it's for not sure. the thing itself. And this is very tricky because people think, oh, you know, I want the car, I want the gold, I want the house, but it's like, not really. You actually want the services the thing is rendering to you, right? The house is giving you shelter, a place to have your family and home and to cook meals and sleep and all of these things. Now with money, it turns out, and this is from, I'm drawing lessons from the economist Gary North, and he has an excellent book titled Honest Money. It's a free PDF online. I encourage people to check it out. Many people ascribe a different number of qualities or properties of money that people seek. Gary narrows it down to five, and I think he pretty well captures it. And he says, what people want in a good money is something that's divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, and scarce. And now I've talked about this a lot. So if I've shared this with you before, stop me and we can skip over it. Or no, I no. Can, I can Keep go going. Through. It's good okay. for me to have a refresher. And for most people, this will be their first time hearing it. Okay, cool. And these these five properties of, of money, I actually, if you can integrate into, and you probably were already going to, but if you can integrate into this discussion, why gold became a currency yes, and how it meets these five principles of money, or maybe it yes. doesn't completely meet all of them, because I'm sure that you're eventually segueing into Bitcoin at that point. That's exactly right. And that's exactly where I'm going with this is so a lot of things have been tried as money, different places, different times. Monetary technologies have often been disrupted or outcompeted. So uh, I wrote about this in the piece, Masters and Slaves of Money. In ancient Western Africa, they were using, I may have said seashells earlier. I meant glass beads. So let me correct myself. You, you did say glass beads. Okay, I did. Yeah. Okay. They're called agri beads. They later became known as slave beads. And, and here's the reason why. In this is like 15th, 16th century Western Africa, glass making technology was relatively primitive. So making these glass beads was a, an expensive process. It was difficult for Africans to forge these glass beads. So that meant their supply was relatively scarce to other goods and services trading in the economy. And now that meant for, again, that's one of the properties of money, which I'll explain. That meant that glass beads served as a good money in ancient Western Africa. But when Europeans showed up and they saw that Africans were using these glass beads as currency, they quickly realized, oh my goodness, Glass bead, glass making technology back in Europe is very sophisticated. 
we can make massive amounts of these glass beads for cheap. We can then import them into Africa and use them to acquire the goods and services that require a lot of work to basically extract wealth from the African economy. And that's indeed what happened. Uh, some of these European explorers started packing ship holes full of glass beads, right? As many glass beads as they could contain onto a ship. And they would go into the African economy and they would use it to obtain goods and services because they were introducing a monetary technology or they were, you could say it's like disrupting a monetary technology. Something that was scarce in Africa was not scarce in Europe. So Europeans could bring these glass beads into Africa to acquire goods and services. And what this led to was this slow motion uh, wealth transfer from the African economy into the hands of Europeans. And over time, over the course of several hundred years, this actually impoverished Africa. And it's not, we get hung up here because we think it sounds like evil or bad, but it's almost like just a, a direct outcome of the technological realities. It's like we had better glass making technology, they had worse. So we were able to, you know, counterfeit, if you will, these glass beads and use them to acquire wealth. And so a key point here is that money needs to be expensive to produce. If another group can produce it inexpensively, they can use it to steal wealth from those who cannot produce it inexpensively. And that's a key point that I'll come back to. And devalue, I would presume, and devalue the currency in itself by producing it for a lot less. Is in that correct? Process, yes. Yeah. yeah, you're debasing the currency, right? So if you think of money as the means by which we acquire goods and services, if you increase the supply of money, then the price of things go up as we've all seen through uh, throughout the 20th century, as we've seen acutely over the past few years, right? Since central banks around the world counterfeited trillions of dollars, uh, the prices of everything have gone up. Now you use the term, the provocative term of counterfeited, and I don't wanna presume that somebody listening understands the utilization of this term counterfeiting. And what I'd like you to share is how uh, the the printing of money, in your view, is theft, yeah, and subsequently counterfeiting of the currency. I will I will get there for sure. So now counterfeiting it's a bit of a again back to the insufficiency of language here. It's a bit of a legalistic dis distinction. So George Floyd a few years ago, right? He was he got in trouble with the law because he had a counterfeit twenty dollar bill which meant someone that was not the Federal Reserve copied a US $20 bill and tried to sell it onto the market as if it were a Federal Reserve pr produced $20 bill. Now, there is zero economic distinction between what George Floyd did and what the Federal Reserve does by the trillion. There's only a legal distinction. There's one group of people that are allowed to do it and a large group of people that are not allowed to do it. Well, hello, friends, and I hope that you're enjoying this episode of the 360 Experience podcast. To listen to the remainder of this episode, please visit us at The Loan Atlas, where you will also find the most comprehensive resource for mortgage professionals to build their practice, backed by the greatest faculty that's ever been assembled in the mortgage industry. Check us out at the link below or go to theloanatlas.com.
www.thrivingcapital.com. Look forward to having you as a guest on our next episode of the 360 Experience Podcast.